Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. He may have the second most difficult job on the planet. Sean Spicer, uh, the newly appointed press secretary and communications director uh, for Donald Trump, the incoming president, has a a rich history in politics and communications, uh, but now he's taking on the biggest job there is, uh, speaking for a president of the United States uh, who speaks for himself, often in 140 characters. Sean came by the Institute of Politics the other night to speak to our students and sat down with me for a discussion about Donald Trump and where the country is going from here. Uh, Sean Spicer, welcome. Thank you for coming to the Institute of Politics, uh, and thanks for being here. I know you've got a busy schedule. I want to ask you before we get into sort of more contemporary things. How's a guy from Rhode Island end up as a Republican? It's, it's <laughs> I baffling am the Republican. <laughs> um, you know, it's a great question. I think in Rhode Island, um, we actually elected a lot of Republicans. We have a history of Republicans. but very moderate Republicans. Chafee, Chafee. Like uh, we had Claudine Schneider. Yes. Um, uh, and, and Ron Makeley was growing up uh, the first district. We've had a lot of Republican governors over time. Um, you know, the interesting thing is I, I didn't grow up in a political household. Um, my parents both voted, uh, but I think we didn't talk politics at the dinner table much. We talked issues. Um, and I think as I got into high school, uh, there was this – We I really kind of grew interested and excited about government and politics. And I think that that's one of those – Your um, mom is a – she's an academic. She's right? an academic at Brown University. In uh, uh, East, Near Eastern Studies or something? Like uh, East Asian Studies, East yeah. Asia Studies. Yeah. Um, You've been consulting her lately? There's no, a lot no, going no. on over no, there. No, but um, – so yeah, definitely. And um, you know, I, I got I got bitten by the bug. I actually went to college, to Connecticut College. And if you're from Rhode Island, going to New London, Connecticut, which is right over the border, is like a big deal. You left the state. Uh, but I went to Connecticut College with the intent of being a, a Japanese language major and spent the first two years um, studying Japanese language and you know was horrible at it. But I <laughs> grew up in a very – at best, middle class household, and, and I was told, "Hey, if you, Connecticut College had one of the premier East Asian studies programs. I thought if I went and learned Japanese, combined it with an interest in economics, you know, that I could I could make a ton of money in New York and in Wall Street." Um, and so for two years, I kind of did that, and and I frankly um, wasn't that good at it. But also, I wasn't inspired, and I start I took a couple government classes in politics, and and they were your typical. Um, sort of liberal government, and I, I felt challenged. I wanted to, and so while I, I definitely wasn't some hardcore conservative, it was those kind of academic exchanges and the intellectual curiosity that really brought out a lot of 
philosophical understanding of where I wanted to go politically, I got involved and started campaigning on races. I interned in the state. Yeah, what kind of races did you do? So we had uh, the Connecticut 2nd District in 1992 uh, was a guy named Ed Munster who had been a one-term state senator, worked for Pfizer um, in uh, eastern Connecticut and ran against Sam Gaginson who had been a long time institution institution down there. And and literally I think we spent a total of $50,000. The second district was I think 52 towns and cities, the the third – eastern third of Connecticut. So it's very diverse uh, but rural in a lot of places. And um, I wrote letters to the editor and helped do field work in New London, Connecticut. We lost the race by 3,000 votes with no money. Um, and it kind of – it really was a shoe leather campaign. And I said I'm going to go to Washington right after um, college in 1993, went down and immediately Munster called and said, hey, I'm going to run again. Would you come back and be one of my field directors? Um, and it just – So you did a little of everything in those campaigns. Oh, I yeah. I tell these kids who ask me, well, how do you become what you – were. Yeah, and I, I mean, I look so in New London, Connecticut. I lived in the attic of, of a townhouse for free in 1995 or 96. I lived literally in a trailer with no electricity in New Jersey. Uh, but I, I would go. Uh, my first job managing a campaign was in 1996 out in Western Pennsylvania, Green, Westmoreland counties. Um, I desperately wanted to get into press and managing campaigns. And uh, so I got a call from a pollster who had been involved. Well, in a, why did that appeal to you, the press side of it? Because I loved, I loved the the immediacy of it. You either, when a story comes up or an issue, you either get the story out the way you want it. You either kill the story or you're dealing with it. And it's this adrenaline rush at all the t- all times. Are you getting your message out? Is it going out the way that you want it to? Are you shaping it in a way? But that story happens or not. You know, usually on a daily basis, and you wake up and you fight again the next day, and it's never boring. And I find that exhilarating. It strikes me that you like reporters more than, say, Donald Trump does. Well, I mean, it's it's a they're a part. I think reporters who do do due diligence do a good job. Um, and aren't I, there a lot of them? There, I mean, there, no, I, I'd say there's a good amount of them, but there's more and more. You're seeing less reporters focus on. Good stories, in-depth stories, factual stories. I've disagreed with a lot of reporters and a lot of stories, but I've said, you know what? You gave us our due. I think it was balanced. I don't like the outcome of it, but I think you did a good job on that. That's very different than – there are stories that I've really liked where I think the reporter did a bad job. I mean you can like a bad story because it came out in your favor, but you look at it and say that really wasn't done well. We actually ended up with a a good story. I Um, mean to take you away from your narrative. So uh, you – and then you ended up in Washington I did. at the D, at the R Triple C. So I basically went down budget um, committee. And- I, I, yeah, I started um, in in uh, I interned in the House Ways and Means Committee right after we took control of Congress in '94. Worked for a freshman congressman after that. Went out and did a campaign. Ran Frank Lobiondo's first campaign in New Jersey's second district, which is the lower half of New Jersey. Um, and then, um, and did then- you like the campaigns better than than, I, than I think governing? There's a part. You know, I'm a I'm a I would say I'm a House guy versus a Senate guy. The nice thing about a House race, in, I mean, a House member is that you're you're usually having to scrap for that story. That you're having to be creative. How do I get the media that's got two senators who's got you know who are important by nature of being a United States senator? If you're a freshman congressman, for the most part, you're scrapping. You're figuring out how do I be creative? How do I get this story out there? How do I get reporters to show up? How do I amplify this message? And I think it instills a sense of um, creativity in press people. I enjoyed 
the House side to the extent that I had members that I worked for that were either going to have tough reelects or really wanted to engage on key issues. And so it was a, a daily – it was almost was a, it was almost like a campaign, mm-hmm. um, which is what you know – and you know that from the White mm-hmm. House. You have issues or initiatives or policies that you're pushing. And so every day is like a campaign, but instead of trying to win an election, you're winning an idea. You want to win a vote in Congress. You want to get the American people on board on you with a policy. And I think that's a very unique – um, and so that part of governing I like is when you're advancing an agenda um, that, that you can see the fruits of. And you did a couple of uh, cycles at the RCCC. Yeah. So the NRCC, I was the – I went down and did a, uh, a race in – NRCC. Uh, that's why you got a different nomenclature yeah, we, over we there. Yeah, we do. Uh, we um, – I went in 2000, did Clay Shaw's race and I got sent down at the end. He was in Florida's – I think it was 22nd district. It was probably the best district in America. It's three miles wide and like 90 miles long from Miami Beach <laughs> up to Palm Beach. I mean if you weren't on the beach, you were out of the district. And uh, he faced a very tough election for the first time since he'd been elected in 1978. So I got sent down at the end. They said, if you can help save this, great. But you know, we think it's a goner. We ended up pulling out the vote by 321 votes. In 2000, our district was Broward, Miami-Dade, and Palm Beach County, which happened to be some very popular counties for – Vice President Gore and, and then Governor Governor Bush uh, fighting out. So we actually had a really, really intense recount that was coupled by the current – the recount for the presidential race. It was a great campaign. After the race was done, uh, the folks at the NRCC, which is our congressional committee that focuses on reelecting House members and getting new ones on board, uh, Tom Davis from Virginia was the chairman at the time and said, hey, do you want to head up – we called back then incumbent retention, yeah. which meant the guy who helped the members that were elected. He, he's a brilliant guy, by the way, uh, just as a political mind. Oh, yeah. And so um, I did that. And then at the end of the cycle, I got a call from Jim Nussel. And he had been one of our targets in Iowa uh, that had gotten reelected. And he said, you know, can I sit down and talk with you? Now, I assumed it was about getting ready for his next cycle. And I thought, OK, I'll sit down with him, meet with him. He offered me, he said, I really enjoyed how you handled yourself at the NRCC. Would you come over and lead the communications for the House Budget Committee? Right. I did that for three years. Then I spent a year at the House Republican Conference, which is sort of the messaging office of our leadership in the House, and then went um, – and spent the last three years of the Bush administration as the assistant United States trade representative for media and public affairs, which is like one of those two-line business card things. This is um, this is of interest, of course, because you were in the office of the trade representative. The Bush administration was very uh, active, active in pursuing trade agreements. Right. Uh, you're now working for a, a president, or soon will be, a president who uh, is – is, is hostile to the agreements that have been struck. I don't want to get into semantics as to right. whether he's for good agreements or bad. But he's viewed as uh, someone who is an opponent of uh, some of these trade agreements. And, in fact, there's a certain political logic to it in terms of driving a wedge among Democrats. There are a lot of Democrats who are skeptical uh, of right. trade. Uh, but how do you, having devoted your – several years of your life to making the case. And you travel widely, I think, yes. all over the yeah. world on this. Spent a good deal of time on the, in, in different countries. And uh, I mean, what, what is your fundamental view? Well, I think, I think it's not that different. I think one of the things that if you go back and you look at Reagan, which is what a lot of um, Trump talks about, is, is bilateral deals and making sure – and what we had gotten into later into the Bush years was multilateral agreements, the Doha Agreement – TPP was started back in the Bush administration. And I think that's where you start 
to it becomes a little bit more tricky crafting a deal because you're you've got so many countries involved in these and you've already got trade agreements with some of them you've got tariff barriers and non-tariff barriers um, in some countries and so by nature of a multilateral agreement more people have to get on board and sometimes that may not fully benefit the US in the same way i think that there's a degree to which um, currency manipulation and, and tariffs on steel and things like that probably would be more prevalent in a um, in a Trump administration, uh, but he is a he believes in trade. I think he just believes too often we've traded away the ability to maintain a manufacturing base, um, and and that our workers have suffered because of of the trade agreements that have been passed. Do you believe that? I, I think I, I I know where he's coming from. Some of it I do believe. I believe that some of our focus on multilateral agreements probably hasn't been to the best. But one of the things that's that we as a country have got to remember is we we have low tariffs to begin with. And so when we go in and negotiate these things because we're almost a tariff-free country for the most part on a lot of goods and services and other countries have high tariff and high barriers of entry, um, whether it's agriculture or manufacturing or in a lot of cases services. Uh, but we have a philosophy in this country that if you come here and you set up, so if you want to set up a, a bank or an insurance institution, as long as you abide by the rules, for the most part, you can set it up. A lot of countries restrict that um, access if you're not um, a, a domestic-based Isn't that a reason to have trade agreements? It is. But remember, what happens is we go into trade agreements with very little to bargain for. And so to some degree, sometimes we, we, we give away – because we we start at let's say zero and they're at twenty and we don't have much to give away because we're already down at zero or one or two and they're saying okay I'll cut my tariff from twenty to ten we're already at zero so we have to figure out something to give them uh, when we're already tariff free on a product or something and I think that's a that's a very complicated thing I think to some degree we've got to f- recalibrate where we go into some of these negotiations. What do you think? Um Based on your experience, now I'm not asking you this as the spokesman uh, for the president, but uh, are, are tariffs desirable in your view, high tariffs? I mean he's talked about slapping 35 percent on manufacturers who well, go out of country. Who go out and then want to sell back. Mm-hmm. And I think what we have to do is remember that right now we have a regulatory system and a tax system that almost benefits countries from leaving America – going overseas, setting up and then coming back and selling their goods and services. I think we have to look at the entire – regulatory and tax system. But I think one of the things that Trump has been very clear at is that what he is talking about is saying if your sole goal is to leave this country, reestablish yourself in another country and then come back and sell your goods and services to the United States using non-U.S. workers, there should be some kind of penalty in that. I think that's the first step. The second step is in an entire look at the regulatory process and system and figure out what we can do to be more favorable to business. It's what cities and states do already right now in our country is that you see ads for – Different states trying to compete with another, saying we'll offer you know tax-free uh, incentives for X year, no property tax on this. I think what we well, that's been kind of a disaster in some states. It, I mean, our state has suffered where businesses take the, the first of all, you get into a kind of race uh, that is expensive with other states, right. and secondly, businesses often take those benefits. Uh, and uh, and then don't fulfill their obligations. Well, I mean, but that doesn't mean right. And I think that that when those agreements are put in place. Uh, there needs to be probably more scrutiny as what's what are they doing to make sure that they're offering workers the benefits that they desire or are they staying for the amount of time that they ever they're making the infrastructure investments that they're committing to so that the state and the worker gets the benefit uh, for giving them the, the tax preference. But, you know, um, I'm, I'm interested to hear what conversations you must have within the Republican Party because just as there are divisions within the Democratic Party, and this the president's been a supporter of the TPP, obviously, uh, 
there are uh, avid opponents of that uh, in the Democratic Party. The Republican Party, a lot of the leadership has been very, very much in favor of such agreements and probably still are, Paul Ryan being one of them, Mitch McConnell uh, being another. What kind of conversations are going on around about about this right now? Well, I, I think that's one of several, um, and that's happening with, with both the Speaker, members of the Ways and Means Committee, and, and it's try to figure out what we can do. I think we'll withdraw from TPP. The president-elect has made that very clear. He's looking to renegotiate parts of NAFTA. Um, but I think at the end of this, what – Would he be of, willing to go – if the, if the leadership opposed what he wanted to do, would he go do it anyway? Sure. He's not – look, I, I think that you've seen this already. He's not looking for permission. He's going to do what he thinks the American people need uh, to spur economic growth, to create jobs, to put the American worker first. This isn't a guy who has spent the last year and a half asking people what, you know, what, for permission to do things. Um, I think he wants input. He values ideas, opinions, um, analysis, and facts, and then he makes a decision and he goes with it. Well, let me ask you a, a related question, and I do want to get back to your to your story. Um, he won um, uh, the election with uh, less than uh, uh, not just less than a majority, but less than votes than Hillary Clinton by some three million, and um, narrowly winning the three states that gave him the electoral margin. He's elected president of the United States. That's our system, and I. We all ought to respect uh, that. But and <clears throat> given that and given the fact that the Senate is narrowly divided, how much humility should there be in terms of policymaking, knowing that the country's deeply divided and that he didn't uh, – that, he, that he's got a lot of uh, persuasion to do? Uh, I mean, should that be at all a concern, or do you feel like he, he that any election is a mandate, and he should just go forward with the things that he campaigned on? I, I think you got to go forward with the things you campaigned on. I mean, look, let's get, just to get back to be clear. When you look at where President Obama leaves office versus where he comes from, we've lost, you, the Democrats have lost over nine hundred seats at the local, state, and federal level. Um, this was a. If you look at this race, there was every pundit. Assume that the Senate was gone. Just how by how much we ended up making a, a fairly significant. I mean, majority, considering where we thought we were going to be. When you think about what states he flipped: Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, in particular, Maine, two, um, st- Iowa, states that you know people had talked about were were a fool's errand. And and we took them all nine of thirteen battleground states. I'm not asking you. No, to, but I'm, I think I'm, it's important to because I think we hear that a lot. And I think the fact of the matter is is that if we knew that the popular vote was part of it, we would have campaigned more in California and Illinois. But but it it, it needs to be. I mean, it's literally like saying, "Hey, you do realize that the Bears got more touchdowns than the team they're playing this weekend?" But at the end of the day, because of field goals and safeties, your team won. Well, that's how the game plays. That's not Whoever even gets... a credible analogy because the Bears don't get touchdowns. That, that's right, and they're a good point. Sorry, yes. I'm yeah. a Patriots fan. <laughs> um, but I think that that I, I would argue that y- y- given that the states that he won. In terms of, if you think about it, nine of the thirteen battleground states where the landscape of this election was played, he won. I think he should get opinions and ideas and advice, which he has been doing from his opponents, from Democrats, from independents, from people inside and outside of government. But I think you have to pursue the agenda that you told people you were going to do. And the other thing is I I believe firmly that 
as he continues to rack up successes both domestically and internationally, bringing jobs home, um, focusing on good people in the cabinet and reforming things, whether it's the VA or the IRS, getting people to see that they may not always agree with Donald Trump. But he's going to do what's in the best interest of his country at all times and he's going to have successes. He's going to focus on jobs. He's going to focus on bringing the manufacturing base to this country back. And I think that what I would hope is that if you weren't with him, that you give him a chance and that you judge him on his successes. Uh, We're going to take – in the spirit of bipartisanship and great American capitalism, we're going to take a short break for our sponsors here. I I support that. So my my question, Sean, was uh, slightly different, though, which is – and maybe you've answered it by saying you think the way he governs will bring more people uh, along. But, uh, you know, the environment is very, very raw. And uh, the question is how um, – given the rawness of the, of, the, of the country and the um, – and the fact that for whatever reason uh, he didn't win the popular vote and he narrowly won the electoral uh, vote, um, should that give him any pause? And I guess your answer is no. No, it shouldn't. I, I think he's going to pursue – now, let, let me step back for a second. I think on election night you heard very clearly at whatever it was, 2.38 a.m. that I want to be the president for all Americans and I want to demonstrate that. He, he understands that and he, I think what he wants to do – is through action instead of just word and rhetoric show people that he's got a better way for this country, that he can do what he said he was going to do, that he's not going to have business as usual. I think he's much more of a doer than a shower. We had an interesting conversation uh, in front of a crowd of students uh, a couple of minutes ago and a lot of discussion about Twitter. Right. Uh, There's no doubt that uh, if any uh, president-elect or any incoming president has uh, pioneered a new medium uh, and used it to his advantage. It's Donald Trump. Well, I think and Kennedy, Twitter. I mean, it, it, I Kennedy used, had television. Right. Well, and, and that radio. He is definitely, first, uh, before we forget to, to give a shout out, I, I want to say uh, I, I, I think that uh, the, the students here tonight uh, did a phenomenal job. I, I was really impressed with the level of questioning, uh, the level of respectfulness, and, uh, and it's a shout out and, and big kudos to both the Institute of Politics and the university. I think. Uh, Maybe that's our ad break. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I appreciate that. Uh, but but getting back to it, I think he is he is um, he has a very effective way of reaching. You know, what, it's closing in on fifty million people through the various social platforms. Um, and and I think even if you go back to what Kennedy did with TV, there was still a filter. I think what he's got is this direct line of communication to the American people, um, not just the American people, frankly, to the world. And he has used it very successfully to not only communicate messages, I think, but to get results. And that's important. You know, uh, the, the, the filter, I think, is the question that comes up is, isn't it good at some point? I know you're talking about the filter of the news media. Right. But isn't there, shouldn't there be some filter sh- uh, in, be, between someone's sort of thought at a moment uh, and what the world hears from the president yeah, but I, see, I, I, I don't. And today, I'll give you an example. Today, as we speak, he sent out an, uh, a tweet, um, essentially quoting Julian Assange, as saying that uh, the 
in addition to that, the DNC should have done a better job on security, that the Russians didn't supply him. No, no. What he said was well, just to be clear. What he said was Assange says that he doesn't do it, and I think part of that with an exclamation point. But 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 I think the guy who's being accused of something has been very clear, and I think that's partly missing from the discussion. But I would go back a second and say you don't want to hang your hat on Julian Assange. No, no, no. I'm not hanging my hat. I'm putting it in context. I think that there's times like he made it very clear that this is a guy who's saying that this didn't happen, and that's largely been absent from the discussion. But one of the things that I think people largely miss in the media about Trump is that his tweets, his phone calls, his meetings, he is a very, very, very strategic thinker. He understands the outcome he wants to achieve and kind of works backwards and uses the tools at his disposal to achieve that goal. And he's done it with huge success. So interpret this one for me. Where's he going with this? Well, I, that's not uh, – part of it is that's that's part of the strategic nature of this is that he's not here saying here's where I'm headed. But he understands – But do you know where he's headed as the guy who's in, – in, in some cases, yes. We've sat down and he'll walk through and say this is where I want to end up. This is how I'm going to do. Sometimes – but it's not incumbent upon the president. Did you do on this on – this, uh, I'm not going to get into the private conversations <laughs> that I do or do not have with the president-elect. But I will tell you that at times he shares it with myself or other members of the staff when he tells them this is what I think a smart strategy is. He seeks our opinion. At the end of the day, he makes that decision and sometimes he doesn't. But that's the nature of being the president-elect and soon-to-be president is that he is the ultimate decider. Although I don't know any president who has so consistently kind of gone, uh, you know, I don't want to say rogue, but because the but, president but I think came, that, but, but one of the points that I think is important, David, is that people assume because he didn't broadcast it out and because they didn't have a press conference or a meeting with people to say this is what I'm doing, that it's rogue. That there's, there's a lot of times when there's a method or a decision made behind something. And I think because people don't have full access to how it's done, they assume it's rogue. And I think in most cases, there is a, there is a deep strategy to this, um, to where he wants to end up. And sometimes he sought a ton of input and sometimes he sought you know, the, the input that he felt necessary. But to assume that because people aren't privy to the decision-making process – that it's so-called going rogue is just not a fair a fair analysis. You're a, a military guy. One thing we didn't get into is that you're in the you're in the naval reserves and you're a commander in the naval reserves. So to, first of all, how did that come about? And talk a little bit about your experiences there, and then I want to come back to this discussion. So as I, I mentioned earlier, I grew up in Rhode Island. The Navy's um, you know although a lot of water a, there, a lot of water. It's the ocean state, uh, yeah. and I think um, while the pre- the Navy's presence largely pulled out, leaving it with, with Prior to what it was back in the you know 40s and 50s, um, and even early 60s, um, it's a big Navy town, and it's a big Navy presence. My father's from Newport. My great grandfather was a recipient of the Medal of Honor. We have a long, mm. uh, a, a long history in the Navy in our family. Um, I got in the Navy at 29, fairly late, as a young officer. Went down to Pensacola, did my. Training. What made you decide to? I do? just, I, I really, I never. We didn't have fraternities when I grew up. When I went to school, um, I, I never, and I, I felt. A, a sense of wanting to belong to something that gave back, and I know not, and I don't mean to say that the Navy is a fraternity or that, but there's this sense in the Navy that some of the friends and experiences that I had seen other people have in military service was something that I wanted to do. I wanted to give back to the country. I had served in government, but I think that there's something very, very unique about the military that I was drawn to, um, and I wanted to serve. and um, And I've always held the military in high esteem. I really was enamored with the Navy. Um, and so I worked really hard to get a commission as a public affairs officer and did that. Um, I've kept 
a very, very clean and distinct line between any political work and my Navy work um, because I've served in the Navy and as a public affairs officer because of a desire to serve both the country and, and what I think uh, is, is the best Navy in the world and the best military in the world. But I've it's, it's been a very fine line and I've kept that, you know, there's not because it's because I have to, but because I want, I serve because I want to serve. Um, and I don't want anyone in the Navy to ever think that there's this, or anyone in the country, frankly, to think there's a blurred line. Uh, my Navy service and my respect for our constitution and our elected leaders, um, the second I put on that uniform is, is unquestionable versus the, some of the political work that I may have done. The, um, and presumably uh, being part of the Navy and you, you've served, talk, talk a few, about places where you've you've. So I, I, I'm, I'm a. I started in the reserves. Uh, I've served in Norfolk. I've done a couple tours in the Pentagon. Um, I've done exercises in Guam, Sweden, Hawaii. I spent uh, a tour down in Antarctica. Um, I've been the officer in charge of a Navy Public Affairs Unit. I've been on the staff of the Secretary of Defense, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, so you you have a great appreciation for this whole issue of intelligence because yes. lives are. Uh, at stake when presidents make decisions about where, uh, where to put, uh, where and when they have to put people in harm's way, uh, our members, our service members. Um, there's this, been this big back and forth between uh, Donald Trump and the intelligence community, largely over this issue of Russian hacking. But uh, there was a story that surfaced today that he's thinking of reworking the intelligence. Uh, community and 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 there was a quote in there uh, from a source saying that he feels that it's it's been too political. Uh, explain that. So there's there's two aspects of intelligence. One is the raw data, which is what a lot of the analysts spend their time doing, where they go in and they're looking at um, you know human intelligence, um, other intelligence aspects that are picked up, and and they're providing that straight up. It's raw data. This is what these are what these people are doing. This is what these actions are taking. This is what this country said. This is what our sources are saying that whatever. That's strictly raw data. Then there's the other side of the house, which is the – and sometimes which is what, what I think some of the folks have been looking at, the analysis of that data and the outcomes and conclusions that people are drawing. And it's not just Donald Trump, but I think there's a lot of folks that have questioned how some of the data has been interpreted and whether or not there has been a political use of that data or a political interpretation versus a sort of straight up. Um, but anything that we do, you know, again, whether it's uh, no, no matter what it is, you can say that you and I can go look at a, a, a um, an accident. And I can see one thing and you can say another. And that's – the facts are what they are sometimes, but the interpretation of how you take those facts can be different and you can come to different conclusions. What if 17 different intelligence agencies, as in the case of this hacking thing, came to the same conclusion? But, but that's part Doesn't of, that make it more likely but, that, but, that, that, but, that conclusion But I think part right? of what we're waiting for is to see what they do come. And that's why what he's asked for is for some of these intelligence heads to come in and sit down and explain – how they came to the conclusions that they've come to, how they analyzed it, and have the ability to question them and saying, here's what the raw data that I've been presented says. Here are the conclusions that I think someone might come to. Is that right or wrong? Why did you come to the conclusion that you did? Uh, what degree of certainty do you have that that has? And I think that's part of it is to have a degree of, of skepticism and questioning is, is a healthy part of any interpretation of facts. 
And do you think that uh, – I mean, the, the DNI came out on – the Director of National Intelligence on October 7th and said there was, they had a high degree of confidence that the Russians were behind uh, this hacking. So uh, did he not, when he became president, want to call them in and hear why they came to that conclusion? Well, remember, it's not just – the, the report that's being talked about right now isn't final yet. It won't be final till, till later this week. And so part of what we had was a bunch of people giving their opinions. The, conclusion, the conclusive report that will be presented first to the president of the United States is not conclusive at this point. And I think part of what we at least would, are, would advocate is that before people talk about where this ends up, that we actually wait until the reports are concluded. Do you uh, – but, but when, he, when he popped out the tweet on Julian Assange today, he seemed to be casting – Doubt on that well, I think part of it is to say you've got a guy out there who people have ascribed to being the culprit and where he got it from, and yet he's very clear that he's not. And I think that's a question that needs to get asked. But he's not a very reputable. No, guy. fair enough. But I think that part of what so has you would to, take his word over. The, no, no, the it's not. He, no, but you're not heads of the. And that's not what he said, though. He didn't take his word. He threw out the idea that this is a guy who's out there saying he didn't do it, and I think we need to figure out we need to ask the intelligence committee or if he's denying this is it that he's not telling the truth is that he's you know has a reputation for not telling the truth or is there actual evidence and facts and intelligence that connect him to it but it- uh, and and so what you're saying is when they come in on Friday if they uh, if they make a compelling case as to why they came to that conclusion, that he's prepared to say, yes, I believe the R- Russians I'm not did gonna, this. I, I, I'm not going to get in front of but, – but I think his goal is to listen to their opinions and analysis and ask them a series of questions on how they came to that and their degree of certainty. What he chooses to do after that is up to him. But the logical extension of what you said, which is people shouldn't comment until there's a, a, a the final report. If they deliver the final report, then presumably he will – he will comment, and presumably he's open to the possibility that, yes, this is true. Again, I'm not going to prejudge the actions that he's going to take. He's going to listen to them, and then it will decide whether or not to make his opinion known. Is, let me ask you a question. Uh, I've known you for a while uh, from a distance and more closely now. One of the reasons why you're highly regarded among uh, people in politics, people in the news media, is that you are – a very straight shooter, and uh, that uh, you don't mislead people. And um, how difficult it is is it to take the position you're taking and sort of follow some of these these the tweets and so on, and try and explain them and interpret them and be kind of the Trump whisperer or, or the whisperer to reporters about Trump. Well, again, I don't think you you you. Donald Trump speaks very clearly and very forcefully. You don't whisper. I think there are times in which uh, you know people might see clarification. I'll go to the president. That's what I'm talking about, right? But that's a different. I think there are times when people have you know whispers to try to influence them or try to influence a principal. Donald Trump doesn't have a whisper. But like everybody was confused today about this tweet about the Affordable Care Act. Um, So how do you? But and, and, and so there are times when you you will. Is he telling them to slow down? Excuse me? Is he telling them to slow down on the Affordable Care Act when he says Republicans ought to be uh, careful and let it collapse of its own way? Well, I think part of it is to make sure that you've got President Obama that was up on the Hill today and was trying to tell Democrats to maintain the legacy. And ironically, you had a lot of Democrats going out and saying he gave us no roadmap about how to do this. I think part of what 
there's a strategy that suggests that with Obamacare, the weight of it is going to collapse on its own, and then we have an opportunity. I think he's trying to talk to House Republicans. You saw uh, Vice President-elect Mike Pence up there today trying to form. We're going to, you know, talking about how our strategy to replace Obamacare, but make sure that we have a system in place that does, frankly, what it was intended to do, that it allows people more access to health care at a lower cost. Uh, was it – well, I I should point out because I'd be – I'd hate myself if I didn't that the number of uninsured in this company, the percentage of it has been cut in half by Obamacare. So – but 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 lay that aside well, for a second. Is he saying that, that – I mean, In a large part, there's been an expansion of Medicaid. So, I mean, we've just put people – on a, on a government program, I mean that—that's not what the. I mean, at least that's not what I intended. I—I I believe that when President Obama campaigned on something, he said you can keep your doctor if you like it, you can keep your plan if you like it, and costs are going to go down. I mean, getting forced on a Medicaid, which frankly, more and more people are getting pushed away from the doctors. They want you going to places that say I don't accept Tricare anymore. I don't accept Medicaid or Medicare. I mean, that—that's not what I believe President Obama was talking about, at least. And I think that you may be able to push more people into a government program. With incentives, that doesn't necessarily mean that you've allowed. But but at the end of the day, that means they're they're covered. They're not getting the access or able to see the doctors. We 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 could have a long. We could have a whole discussion on the Affordable Care Act, and you know, I mean, uh, that cost has been driven down. The quality of care has gone up, but that's a whole different. That's a whole different. I'm just asking a simple question, which is: Is he trying to tell the Republicans to slow down a little? Uh, and make sure they know where they're going next. I think part of it is to make sure that we, we talk about the message that we can't just keep putting Band-Aids on, on Obamacare. The costs are, in a lot of cases, the, the, the cost to the government is going up, the cost to a lot of these states, and making sure that, that we, we message this properly because it's not sustainable. Um, so he is saying – don't be precipitous. I, I think his his tweets speak for themselves. As far as <laughs> That's a good, 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 right. good. Thank you. You're going to go far in this business. We're going to take a uh, another short break. We'll be back uh, with Sean Spicer. As you look ahead, uh, and you're um, you are a student of Congress. Uh, you've worked there. Um, how do you see the next? Uh, what, what do you see the big things? that are going to unfold in the next 100 days, what should people expect? Uh, I think, you know, dovetailing off our last part of our conversation, I think Obamacare is going to be a big one. I think tax reform is going to be uh, a big one as well. Um, The president's talked about infrastructure and immigration. I think those are probably the big buckets that you're going to see a lot of action in. And what kinds of of action? Well, again, I'm not going to – we've got – Come on, man. We're trying I, I, to. I know you are. I'm trying but, to but, elicit but, but, something here. I, I, I you're ruining my. No, you're ruining doing, my strategy. The reporter in you is coming out. <laughs> uh, but I, I would say that we're going to lay out, I think, a fairly comprehensive um, agenda for not just the first hundred days, but I think the, the next four years. Some of the things that the president elects going to do are by executive order of executive action. But I think there's also a lot that has to be done in partnership with Congress. And some things, for example, Obamacare, there's a there's a hybrid. Some things you can do through executive action and executive order. But part of it has to also sometimes be done legislatively well in tandem with Congress. And I think part of that is crafting those strategies in each one of those buckets and figuring out how do you get get the get your agenda implemented 
uh, and in different pieces. Sometimes it can be done very easily. Sometimes it's going to take a little bit more. Um, when you say we're going to lay out an agenda for the next four years, is that in the inaugural speech or how are you going to do there's, that? There's a, in the inaugural speech, there'll be a little bit of the vision and the direction that he wants to take this country. I think the contract of the American voter that laid out during the campaign offers a lot of what where he's going to go. But it's not all just about what you get done in the first 100 days, as you know. I think there's some big initiatives that he wants to get done. But I think his commitment um, to moving this country forward isn't something that's going to be just done in the first 90, 100 days. Um, he really sees reform of agencies and services and making sure the American taxpayer is getting the best view for their buck. But also, importantly, things like the VA, that we start delivering care in a way that's worthy of those who have served our country. And right now, that's just not the case. I think figuring out how the services that we get, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, or Veterans Care, is is done in a way that provides the best possible service um, with the least bureaucracy and the least regulation. And that, that what that means is right now you've got a lot of people that, that are trying to get a benefit um, and, and they get tied up in knots because of the bureaucracy and the paperwork. And what we need to do is figure out a way that can we, can we deliver a better product to the American people in a much more efficient and effective way. You're a health secretary and Paul Ryan and others have been an advocate for uh, essentially going to a private model of Medicare – well, Medicaid. I wouldn't say a private, but I think that instituting some some serious reform to achieve better results. And uh, is are you plan? You think that will move forward pretty quickly? I think there's look. I, I think we need to look at how we're delivering healthcare, both in in the private sector and in in um, in government, and figure out can we do a better job of this? I mean, costs are going up. It's becoming harder and harder to see sometimes doctors on a plan, or plan costs are going up. Um, and I think that what we have to do is go back to, to looking at what are we doing to deliver the best possible health care to the American people. I'm not doing a very good job because I'm throwing you pitches and you're swinging at them as a trained professional uh, would. And that's it, probably not a worthy expenditure uh, of our time. Tell me a little bit about what your hope and expectations for your own uh, Job here. This is uh, this is different than anything that it you've is. Done. And it, uh, I, I will say this: I, the, at the discussion we had tonight, Robert Gibbs was there. He, I think someone mentioned he was the twenty seventh press secretary of the United States in his introduction. I mean, that's a pretty awesome responsibility when you think about it. That you are one of a very handful of people that have held this awesome responsibility, um, and I don't take it lightly. I, I visited with Josh Ernst yesterday in the White House and, uh, and the communications Jennifer, Jennifer Saki, communications director, and and it it truly is when you walk into that office, you've been there before you it, it you can't help become enamored and understand the frankly awesome responsibility it has i hope that i walk out um with sort of two things one is in general um leave it a better place and that means institutionally hopefully do things that that bring more people into the process and that means the american people themselves i think uh, there is a stranglehold by what we as republicans call the mainstream media and I think that there's a lot of new outlets. There's there's podcasts like this um, that that you know maybe want to have a question asked or have an interest in being part of the the the, the X Files demands a seat in the front row at the press secretary. You can have one of the networks. You can have. You just pick which <laughs> network. Uh, but but I but I think that we have the proliferation Look of out news. Fox News. <laughs> nope, they're good. Um, but but. Uh, I, I just I, I guess my point is, and we talked about this a little with with the students today. But can we do a better job? 
considering the, the environment that we're in and the, tech, the evolution of technology to allow more people to be part of the process. I think that's a good and healthy thing. I give, you know, Barack Obama came into office at the advent of social media. He used it extremely effective in the 08 campaign. And I think they instituted some, um, some aspects of social media. Josh, uh, and I think Robert did these, you know, at press secretary town halls mm-hmm. on Twitter. Those are ways that they can involve more people. I think that's a healthy, uh, healthy you know, you, legacy you, to have. You, you are an institutionalist, which you don't probably want to admit because it's not popular right now. But I know you have great reverence for institutions. I have the same, I have the same feeling you do when I walk, every day when I walked into that White House, I felt, I felt history. Right. Uh, you you can't help but think about it and uh, and recognize this incredible trust that you have and that democracy is. It feels like our institutions are under siege a bit today. Well, and, and to some degree they are, but I, I think in a lot of cases they let down the American people. And and I don't mean look. And it's not. I think there are some dedicated public servants that that really try hard. But I think to some degree, in a lot of cases, we tie their hands. Um, I, I think. And, and and you know this. I mean, you pick up the phone sometimes and call. I tried to call the IRS, you know, a year ago on a on a tax matter, and, and it just it, it, there was no way you were ever going to get through. You're getting and, and the idea that you're trying to figure out how do I pay my tax yeah. bill and you can't get through getting a question answered. I I think that is that that is. There's no doubt that government should be as efficient as possible, and we well, should think anew about, it, about but, but, but things. But it's not just efficient. But here, my my thing is this, Sean. Um, and I think both of us have some responsibility for this. I'm willing to take my share of the responsibility because we're, we've both been in politics for a long time. And each time one campaign, one, one party is out of power, we basically make the case that uh, the government has failed, the policies have failed, institutions are failing, we're going to change it. And after a while, you keep telling people that. And, right, but and there's it's a very difference. hard to rebuild trust. I mean, I, 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 I'm, no, 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 I'm but, not but putting I, but, it on you. No, no, but I, I, I agree. I think where the, the tweak that I would have in what you're saying is I think it's one thing to discredit or undermine their intent. I think that the Veterans Administration for the most part truly cares. I mean a lot of the staff there are veterans. Um, but I think that the way, the policies and procedures and regulations that we have layered upon them don't make – the ability to provide the best possible care possible. So I don't want to undermine the institution as much as I want a government that is is responsive and that we can be proud of to say, you know, look at what we've done to help, you know, whether it's the elderly, the poor. Um, See, I guess what, what I would argue is, and again, not putting them on, but I can point to examples every single day when people are served by government in ways that are really, really meaningful. And it's always striking to me, and you'll find this as well, whenever a disaster strikes, people don't say, well, I'm not going to call the government. They can't get anything right. And you know what? The government comes in and most of the time does really heroic things to save people, to save property, uh, to uh, forestall deeper disaster. And there are many different ways in which that happens. So my, my prayer for the country is that um, we don't turn the next four years into another assault on uh, our institutions. No, but I, I'm not I sure that, our institutions no, no, but, but, but can take right, it. Right, but I, but I think as long as is what we want to do is empower the, the folks that work at these institutions and agencies and departments and say we want, to, we, we want you to help us make things better. We want to, to provide a better product or a service 
to the American people and the American taxpayer. I think that's important. We want to value the dollar that goes in, but we also want to make sure that the service or product that we're giving the American people on the other end, if whatever that's that. A, I couldn't. I, 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 I'm all. I'm all for right. that. I mean, I'm look. I, I think um, you know. I, I grew up as mentioned earlier in the podcast in, in Rhode Island. I sat back and wondered in awe who who could possibly work in the White House and, and how would that ever happen. Um, and so it's not lost on me how humbling and honoring this is to, to have this opportunity. Um, and I hope, getting back to your the initial part of your question, that at the end of eight years, we walk out and say that this country is better because of this administration. I believe that we can reach out to people who agree with us, who disagree with us. Uh, and, and the president-elect has been doing that. Political foes, um, people in, in industry, but Sometimes. people in industry who you look at the meeting he had with his, so, his the, New Year's tweet to his enemies was not. But, but uh, you look at look at the, the meeting he had with the tech industry, all of the heads of these industries that frankly were adamantly opposed to his candidacy, and he sat down and asked some very simple questions: uh, What can I do to help create jobs and grow this economy? They gave him great suggestions, and he sat in there with his with his team, making sure, hey, let's get these right down. I think at the end of eight years. I hope and my prayer is that we walk out as a as a better country, a more unified country, yeah. a more successful country, and, and and we reassert our place around the globe, uh, and that we be, continue to be that beacon of hope and freedom around the world that people cherish. Well, we should uh, set a date for eight years or maybe four years no, from now and evaluate uh, exactly how that went. And uh, uh, I'll, I'll just say it won't make me popular. As an American, um, you know, I – I want to see this country move forward. We all do, and I think we should. And that's where the politics should subside. And I I think you and I have had a healthy relationship because of that. We understand that we can have disagreements on politics, policy. uh, We can want our team to win. But at the end of the day, the reason I'm sitting across the table from you is because I have a tremendous amount of respect for you. You've always been a fierce warrior but a good person. You care about this country. You care about individuals. You care about people. And I hope to some degree I get – you know, I would hope that that's what that is reflected on me. That I will fight well, I, tooth and nail. I would say the same about you, and I hope your spirit uh, is uh, in, envelops the entire White House, and from your mouth to Trump's ears is my is my hope. Well, he's 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 committed to to uniting this country. I can tell you that, Sean. Uh, I uh, I appreciate you being here. I wish you the best. You got a tough assignment ahead of you, and it'll be an interest. If nothing else, you will live an interesting time. <laughs> Thank Thanks you for so much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.